This song is not a rebel song. Shall we play a game? I am Sammy Daddy. Many students were killed. Feel right now. I'm very angry. He were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. Naughty, naughty, we like the party. Automobile? Oh, Rick, to think that I may never see you again. I think you did it on purpose because you know I've got a runny bottom. I'm Kurt Loder, this is MTV News. Justin, Justin! But this is Miami, pal. I'm not going with that, eh? Let's have a Play-Doh party! Yeah! Now show me wax on, wax off. I'm Spunk Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. It's another episode of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, the podcast where we relive the 1980s. And on tap this time around, we're going to talk about the sacred liturgy of Mr. Mister, memories of Margaret Thatcher, and reflections on school life during our favorite decade. Wouldn't well, know now. I didn't know then, which is a good thing. Uh, oh, that's, really? That's by design. So you were more optimistic back then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are you more pessimistic well, now? No, I think I'm just tired. <laughs> yeah, I think about it all the time, yeah. Yeah. Well, well I see some kid excited about something, like, uh, I just kind of like yawn. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it is. Well, I had a great, you know, group of friends that since like the seventh grade, almost everybody, there's the new people that come and go that move in and out. But, you know, some of my friends still live here. Mm. I grew up here. I was in junior high and high school with them so we were close friends through the whole thing and a couple of them i even went to college with Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't think school was that hard okay well did you have any bad memories like i do remember and this was junior high a couple of girls because i was short for a real long time i was 411 really yeah now i'm only like five two but they called me munchkin and would kick me in the shins so they were kind of bullying you yeah oh wow i told on them and they got in trouble (laughs) But that, that was it. it. That was junior high. In high school, I don't remember that. We were friends. You made friends with these girls? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. I remember, and I, it's funny, and not the day that it happened, it's not funny. Uh-huh. They closed my high school, Bellevue, and my junior and senior, remember this story? My junior and senior year, I had to go to Hillwood, which was our rival. Closed Bellevue, made us go to Hillwood, a comprehensive high school. Now, why did they close it? I'm not sure. Now, it was a junior high, I think, because we were too big. And they moved us, but we hated Hillwood. And so, our first day of school, I know exactly what I was wearing. Um, My burgundy boots, high heel, plaid wool pleated skirt, burgundy sweater that was monogrammed with my amulet holder and all my little jewels and a scarf in my hair. I was sitting in the back left of the classroom, me and my friends, it was AP History with my teacher, Miss Henniger. Fran was passing a note to me about Jeff and it fell on the floor and he grabbed it. And so I reached for it and I tipped over into my chair because it's the old school desk. My chair in my skirt laying on my side. (laughs) First day we're at the new school. So your skirt's like hiked up? No, I caught it. Okay. But I'm laying there. How am I going to get out? All my friends are laughing at me. Uh-huh. And the teacher's like, somebody help her. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I got up and I curtsied and I sat back down. But you got the note. 
Yes. Oh. Yes, that's what mattered. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah. Did Jeff and uh, your friend ever get together? Um, maybe after graduation. Oh. Seems like all of us went on a trip together and they they got together then. Oh. You know, went to Florida after graduation. Oh, that's sweet. I was getting sick in class, but I still I just sat there. I was getting ready to vomit. I put my hands over my mouth, so it came out my nose. <laughs> oh no! But the night before, we had vegetable soup, and so apparently I don't. <laughs> apparently I don't chew my vegetables in soup. So, so oh intact green beans came out of my nose. So that was something that I, I've never lived down. I was really surprised when somebody didn't mention that at. You know, at the reunion because people just love that story. <laughs> oh, didn't that hurt? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> now, see, I had friends that smoked mm -hmm. and even members of my family that smoked. Uh -huh. I didn't. Uh -huh. But my buddy across the street, Stanley, he did. Mm -hmm. So I'd stayed over the night over there with him. And his mom was on to him. So he wanted me to take his bag of marijuana to my house. So I stuck it in my pillowcase. And because, you know, I was a little bit naive at that time. I come home. I don't take my pillowcase to my bedroom. I leave it on the kitchen counter. Oh, no. So my mom comes, picks up my pillow, and out falls marijuana. So I was in a lot of trouble. Really? I didn't want to rat out Stanley. Oh. You know, I played the, I don't know where that came from. Did they believe you? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not mine. Yeah, you know, that was that much was truth. Yeah, I can't imagine how you much know? trouble you would have gotten in. That was that would be pretty. That huge. was huge. Yeah. That, but however, my mother had washed when I was probably a sophomore. She washed my football workout clothes with the rest of family clothes. Mm -hmm. So when I was getting ready for practice and put my leg in my practice pants and her underwear fell out. <gasps> The guys went in a frenzy and they threw it all around. They just ripped it apart. Oh no. So, so I went home and I told her, I was like, oh, your underwear fell out of my pants. And she's like, did you bring it home? I'm like, <laughs> no, the guys ripped it apart. <laughs> and that got a little bit more attention than the marijuana on the kitchen counter. Really? Yes. You got in trouble? Oh yeah. I was grounded over that. Like I'm supposed to say, excuse me guys. <laughs> I have my mother's panties back. <laughs> no, I pretended like I didn't know where they came from. You, you know, they wow. clearly came out of the leg of my of my pants. Do you think she was just embarrassed, and that's what you got the brunt of it, or? Well, and I told her I was like, hey, I was embarrassed. It was embarrassing, and she, yeah. you know, she didn't see it the same way. Well, at least they were clean. Yeah. yeah. Now, my friend and I. Connie, who lived right across the street, we used to sneak out at 2 or 3 in the morning. Oh, yeah, this is good. Because I grew up in West Mead. We'd sneak out at 2 or 3. We'd push the giant Caprice Classic down the street to start it, right? <laughs> How big is that car? And we couldn't weigh 100 pounds each when we were in high school. To drive all the way over to Nolansville and Thompson to get Krispy Kreme donuts. Mm. I wasn't out with boys or She's drinking or drugs. <laughs> oh, yeah, we were going for Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> so, you know, later I can remember maybe in college telling mom, she goes, Oh, I know. I'm like, What? She goes, Yeah, I knew. 
I knew what y'all were doing. I was like, did, did she know you're getting Krispy Kreme? Yeah. How would she? I have that? no idea. Huh. I have no idea. I don't remember like what we did. If we ate them there, we got them and came back and stayed at Connie's house. Connie's sister probably told. He's like dropping knows? glaze over the place. I or don't something? even know. <laughs> no, mm, wasn't wasting any of that. Ice uh, okay. Are you kidding? Oh. Yeah. So that's what we did. <laughs> jobs I didn't have a job because I didn't have a car we lived in a town of 350 people but I did have you know I was frugal I did save money and so my buddy Jeff didn't have a car either so you know we came up with this solution that I would buy a car it would be my car that he kept at his house and whenever it was at my house it was his car and we actually thought that that was a believable story. So we never we never did that, but we really worked hard on that on that theory of how we could buy a car and that's pass a, it off as each other's. That's a pretty good plan. Yeah, actually yeah. that might have worked. Maybe not in Coelho, but hmm. Yeah. You're like, no. <laughs> My mother was a little bit too savvy. It was hard to pull things over. Scaring people was really my thing. Okay. <laughs> Any chance you got to be in a dark closet, behind a chair, in a dark room, it didn't really matter. Just anywhere somebody would be unsuspecting. I even would get under my sister Nicole's bed, and it was actually so low to the floor that you'd have to pick it up and put it on you. There was not room you to slide did under that? it. Yeah, so when she got ready to crawl into bed, you'd reach your arm out and grab her. Wow. So that never went. I, I always got. I could pretty much scare anybody. Huh? My mom would punch you if you tried to scare her, so she was off limits. And then Nicole, if you scared Nicole, my mom would punch you, so she was sort of off limits as well. Is that your sister? Yeah. Uh -huh. But everybody else was, you know, fair game. Uh -huh. So so you scared your dad even? Oh, yeah, all the time. How? Well, one time my dad was in the kitchen. He was getting a burrito and a glass of milk. So I... <laughs> Great combination. I know. So I just stood inside the dining room door in the dark, and as my dad passed through, I just reached out with, <laughs> his dad up and touched his shoulder. Well, he squeezed his burrito in half and threw the glass of milk over his shoulder. <laughs> but I'm still doing stuff like that today. You do it to her? Oh, I do it to Amy any chance I get. <laughs> it's hard for me to sneak up on people because I'm a heavy breather. So she'll be, I'll be five feet away and she'll say, I hear you breathing. So, <laughs> When she's in the shower or when she's drying her hair are good opportunities for her. Wow. Yeah, uh, scares me. And you never time. get tired of it? Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's sweet. No. <laughs> no, I try to scare him. Oh, sometimes I do it when I'm not trying because I'm not as good at it as he is. In high school, did you scare your friends? Oh, yeah. Well, you could hide in the utility closet with the door cracked. Oh. And as they walked, say if you're in, your door is going to open to your right. So you'd have to wait till somebody was on the left side of the hallway to pass the door. That's and then you step out behind them. Uh, so we did that. I think in art class, we I hid in the art cabinets. <laughs> One time I was in the ceiling. What? You, I, At school? I got in. Yes. I got in the, the ceiling from a closet in the neighboring room, crawled across the beams, and it was the two foot by four foot panels. I was behind Mrs. Turner. I was to her back, and I 
push that panel down. And it was my intention to scare, I think it was Cindy Porter, but I pushed too hard. The panel broke. I fell through the ceiling <laughs> onto the top of the filing cabinet, which in theory worked because I scared the crap out of Mrs. Turner. <laughs> and yourself? <laughs> yeah. Did you get hurt? That's... No. Man, that I think the filing cabinet would hurt, man. Those corners. I didn't get in trouble for that. What? Why? You were in the ceiling well, at school and you didn't get in trouble? No. They thought it was funny? I could be pretty charming, you know. <laughs> well, that's true. Oh, no, I think I got paddled for that because, you know, you can still get paddled in the mm-hmm. 80s. a little yeah. bit of trouble. Yeah, I spent lots of time in the in Mr. Wilkerson's office getting paddled. Oh, Lord. It was a girl. I knew her when I was in the first grade. She was older. I used to write her letters. She thought it was cute. So what would you say in the letters? Give it uh, just, what, I know what, you, what, I like you. What was her first name? Rhonda. So you would write, I, I know you, I like you. Uh, and what, she would respond? Yeah. Uh, she actually called me, but I was so shy. And then I just saw her at school. We just kind of talked a little bit. She said, oh, so you're the one that been, you know, talking about me. Because she had heard about me. And found out that my mom went to school with her daddy. So one day, uh... <laughs> I was in the living room at my house and they came over to the house and my mom was like, your friend is in there. I was like, who? And I wouldn't come out of my room because I was so shy. Then I came on out there. I was like, oh, I, Really? I was, yeah. <laughs> Did she help you, like, hold your hand? She, or? No, we just talked. Uh, so she must have liked you, though. Yeah, she she's no. just kind of looking at me. I guess she was just kind of probably just liking the fact that, I, that somebody gave her attention, I think. Did other people kind of want her to? I didn't know because she was in the fourth grade. I was in the first. Man. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's kind of robbing the cradle, yeah. wasn't she? <laughs> we weren't together, but, right. you know, it's just kind of like, you know, we interacted with each other. Right. Um, she helped change her diaper. <laughs> <laughs> that was just kind of like my first school crush. So it never like, came to pass? No. Like, we were too young. Mm-hmm. I didn't know nothing about love then. I mean, my first real girlfriend, we used to play with in second grade, but I had a girlfriend uh, in third. Actually, I had two girlfriends, and they were best friends. At the same time? Yeah. Well, how does that work? Well, they was like, well, if you her boyfriend, you're mine, too. Well. Yeah, girls were like that sometimes. <laughs> but that didn't really amount to anything. You guys just hung out at recess and all that? Yeah. Just kind of like passing notes and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. You remember how you used to put a box? Oh, yeah. If you like me or will you go right. with me, and they choose one. Oh, that's sweet. I had one that told me no. Oh, no. And I had one that told me that, yeah, I used to be your girlfriend. Then really? <laughs> she sent me a Vitae card. She said, your ex-girlfriend. Whoa. <laughs> had she been your girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah, we went together two mm-hmm. years. That was just one of them little kiddie stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our senior year okay was going down the fall festival oh the fall festival okay that's in evansville right that's in evansville it's every year fall festival is kind of known after mardi gras it's the second largest week-long festival in the united states but mostly it's like three-fourths of it's like food booths and stabbings and stabbings there was a stabbing There's always there's always a random stabbing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, and then like the other quarters, like little rides and stuff, and 
Anyway, we'd always go down there, and because there was always hot girls walking around, so right. it was kind of and funnel cakes and funnel cakes. My house is like on the way to Evansville, so you and come pick me up in Chris's car. Right. Now talk a little bit about. He was a year younger than us. He was younger. a junior. If, yeah. if we were seniors at the time. He was more your friend than probably mine. Didn't he live out near you or no? Uh, yeah, close by, close yeah. by. Well, we were on the swim team, yeah. so it wasn't like we didn't yeah. know each other. I knew him, and I think his dad was real hard on him. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, so that factors into the story a little bit. So, But, you know, they come and pick me up, and I remember uh, getting in the car, and we're driving down there, and we get there, parks next to, like, a big pile of rocks or something. So... He had us get out. I was like sitting behind James on the passenger side. We get all the side, and then like gets out of the car on the passenger side. He like climbs over. <laughs> he climbs well, first of all, yeah. First off, he's a very he's not a small guy. Right. So anyway, he parks by this big pile of rocks. I'm like, what is, what's he doing? He can't get out of the car. So he like climbs over and like gets out. And we go do the fall festival thing. Climb back into the way we came. I don't know why, but we all went back to Chris's house, and his dad was there. Right. And I remember getting out of the car, and then Chris was like, looks on his side, and it's like... The driver's side. The driver's side, right. and he's like, what happened to my car? And like, the car's all like dented in and like smashed in. And I come over and look around, it's like, oh my God. He goes, and I was like, what happened? He goes, I don't know, I must have got hit. Someone hit me down at the Fall Festival. I was like, man, that's messed up. So we went in to his, talk to his dad, and it was like the three of us go in there, and Chris was saying, you know, I was down there and got hit. And I'm like, corroborating that, yeah, you know, we got the cars all smashed up. <laughs> so now, James, you, I, you say what really happened. I do not remember this story. Yes, what really happened. I'm guessing he probably wrecked it beforehand. You had a wreck. You guys were driving crazy. Wrecked the car. He went in a ditch or something. <laughs> and you guys had wrecked the car, but they were trying to set me up. Now wait a minute. How do you? Well, how was I setting you up? Sound like he was setting. He you. was setting up, but you went along with it. <laughs> and you told me a couple days later what really happened, and I was mad. I don't remember this as much as he does. Yeah. Was, on the way to pick me up, these guys... I guess, <laughs> Obviously, the victims remembers it more yeah. than the perpetrator. <laughs> so he didn't want his dad to know that he had done this to car. Right. He wanted to make me look like, you know, so like dad, go along the story. So why would he have had to have had you do it and not just me? Could be more believable. Because his dad didn't trust me or something? I don't know. Well, had a reputation of not telling the truth. Oh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so his dad bought it? Oh, yeah, because I was so convincing. I do not remember this. Climbing I'm not saying I'm like, not above cooperating with a fake story to get my buddy out of trouble <laughs> and blaming it on some other helpless victim. I'm not saying I'm above <laughs> that at all, Mark. I'm just saying I do not remember that. You do not remember that? <laughs> no. Wow. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies. And then the story about him. One time, we gave a ride to some girl. I can't remember who it was, but she was attractive. I was going to sit in the, in the back, and he said, no, you, know, you sit in the passenger seat. Well, okay. So she started to get in the back. She, he's like, no, no, you can't sit back there. The seat's broken or something. So, <laughs> so she, she had to squeeze in. She had to yeah, sit in between us. And 
you know, I remember Smooth. he always resented that he had an automatic car. He, he'd always wanted a stick shift because he, he used to play with it sometimes, like it, as if it were a, you know, stick yeah, shift. Yeah, it was it was automatic, but the shifter was on the floor. The shifter was in the middle. In the it middle, in the so he could act like it was seat. a manual. So, so she had what one leg on one side, one leg on the other. Kind of. She was she was more on my side, but she was, <laughs> he was moving that but shifter. Her, but her legs right were like crotch. over the shifter. So <laughs> he was sitting there every once in a while. He he throw it from drive into neutral. You know, as we're going down a hill or something like, just to get his hand close to those thighs. <laughs> was he touching her? Uh, I brushed on occasion. I mean, oh, that is you might crazy. think gotta know. You might think this is horrible, but I gotta applaud the guy for effort. I mean, I mean come on, we're sixteen, yeah, kinda, seventeen. I know, but that's still kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> come on, he's not we, creepy we all thought it. I'm sure he's a future creep. You're just jealous because that was he was more ingenuitive than you. And you never thought of that. <laughs> ingenuitive is that a word? Yeah, yeah we'll know. say it. We'll is. go with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, you know, having girlfriends and stuff in right. school, and then I was friends with Judd and Brad, and I never dated in school. I didn't go to proms. But what I do remember is whenever you and your girlfriends would get in a fight or you guys would break up, the girls would always call me. Really? <laughs> I got calls all the time. How come you didn't uh, work, play that angle? I don't One know. of his? All of them. No. Judd's girlfriends, Brad's girlfriends, probably, <laughs> I'd get phone calls, it's like, you know, they'd call and, like, I wasn't good around girls, I was real mm -hmm. awkward and stuff, they'd call and they'd be crying, it's like, why did so-and-so break up with me, you know, what's wrong with me or something, and I'm just like, <laughs> how come I'm just not hearing this? I'm just like, I, I don't know, and, and it would just go on, we'd be on the phone for like an hour. And I just didn't know what to say to him. <laughs> so you didn't know? say a word. I didn't say a word because, I don't know, we just didn't talk about that Dude, stuff. you missed your angle. He had a perfect angle yeah. there, didn't he? Rebound City, man. Come yeah. cry on my shoulder. Exactly. Basement. That mean old Judd. He is a jerk. <laughs> Let me show you my basement. Yeah. <laughs> Let me introduce you to my tongue. Yeah. It's not a jerk. But I just remember, like, that's something we just didn't talk about, is just, like, people were out in relationships. Uh, sometimes I didn't even know they broke up, and or they got in a fight. They probably felt like betrayal to you too a little bit you know yeah, I don't remember any like, of my girlfriends ever calling you how would you know <laughs> I guess yeah. yeah I just remember a lot of girls calling my house so they were trying to shake you down for information right oh. <laughs> and I didn't know nothing maybe they really liked you I, I remember one of Brad's the girl she wrote I can't remember her name but she was good looking blonde hair yes <laughs> yep and they broke up, and yes. she called me crying. You know something like, about this? Well, actually, funny story. I ended up dating. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> Very briefly. Very briefly. After Brad? After Brad, yeah. You know me, Judd, and Brad. We swapped girlfriends. I think like every like underwear. <laughs> I know I dated uh, after Brad dated her. After Judd dated her. After Judd dated her. Hey. Um, just kept it in the family, huh? <laughs> like, not to sound gear nothing, Brad was a really good looking guy. Yeah, of the bunch, I think he was probably the... Hey, yeah. hey, 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 hey. Well, he was suave. He, he was very kind. Right. I thought, yeah, yeah, he was a really nice guy. Yeah. And I remember he, he had understanding him. eyes. Am I talking too much about him? He was... Yeah, uh, yeah. he did. Creamy thighs. Creamy yeah. thighs. <laughs> <laughs> he had like alabaster skin. Feather back hair. Yeah. Love yeah. But anyway, the first and only time, you know, the victory was a big thing. It was like a teen dance. Okay. Dance club, yes. Yeah. Downtown Evansville dance club. So me and Brad 
the both of us went down there one night just to kind of check it out and stuff. And, you know, up on the stage, it was the, the dance floor, and then they had, like, tables and stuff. Me and Brad was just sitting at a table and just listening to music. And it's like, a really pretty girl came up, and, like, you know, Brad's sitting beside me, and she comes up, do you want to dance? And, like, I'm, like, going, like, who's... Who's she talking to? <laughs> you know, and you I'm didn't like, have enough confidence. I know, and I was just like, I'm like Brad's here, and I'm like, it's <laughs> me, you know. And she's and did like, you dance? Yeah, I went up and danced right. with her and I'm stuff. Good. And I look out at Brad. Brad would be like, you know, give me a thumbs up and stuff. And I was just like, that was weird. Wow. Yeah, don't sell yourself short, Mark. You're a decent looking guy. He was always a nice guy, friendly, yeah. outgoing, real fast swimmer. Yeah, I don't no. remember that part. <laughs> But I mean, you had a lot going for you. Somehow you had the confidence that me and him didn't. Well, I, I wasn't didn't exactly no. Joe Studley, but uh, I mean, I did okay. Funny was my icebreaker. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to make people laugh, and I like especially making girls laugh. Did Charity find you funny? Yeah. Okay. You know, Did she still find you funny? Uh, infuriating myself <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, that's real funny. You. I do remember you being really shy. I mean, I remember we was cruising Green River Road, uh -huh. Green River Road, which was the hangout, and uh, we'd be bumping bass really loud. You know? <laughs> yeah. Mark's mom and dad's car had a heck of a bass system in it, and it was just like a little family car. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it rocked bass. So we would cruise in that thing. It wasn't cool looking at all, but it could bass, right? Uh, yeah. Thump. And it was me and Mark and another friend of mine named Derek, who didn't go to Boonville. And he was pretty wild and quite the ladies' man. He was he was up for anything. And I was Mr. I guess laid back. And Mark was with us and these girls pull up beside us and start waving and honking and motioning us to pull over to McDonald's and he was like, What do we do? What, do they want to talk to us? What do we say? <laughs> I figured that was probably me. I was freaking out. You were freaking out? And I don't know why. I was just like, relax, just be yourself. But he was definitely a good friend to all of us. That's that was the best thing about Mark. Yeah, he was always a good guy. Well, thank you. So you never think like back how like how other people perceive you. I used to climb on Logue. It was me, you, and it was Alex, wasn't it? Alex Stamps. Yeah, wasn't he with us? Yeah, that's right. You couldn't just like climb up on it. There was a generator. Right. And we would get up there and just, like James was saying, like get the kickballs and the basketballs, everything, all the equipment that kids had thrown up there. Plus, it was a cool view. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. You yeah. could see the courthouse and the whole, yeah. whole town, really. Yeah, at night. So, anyway, but you never went up there because no. you, you were a little uh, trepidatious about climbing the building. Right. And, uh, and like you said earlier, it was a lot easier getting up than it was getting yeah, down. Yeah, you couldn't come back the same way. Because you'd be impaled by the fence. Right, there was uh, a fence there. Right. The, the way you get down was the windows there had like a ledge under them and over them also. They were kind of like a Concrete. frame. Right. Concrete. And so what you would do is you load yourself down. You had to get on a ledge first, which is a little dangerous because it's only about a foot. Yeah, so you got about a foot. On. Yeah, so you, if you lowered yourself down and then you kind of lower yourself down again and, and like just and leap away from the building because or else you would hit the bottom of the ledge right right so it took some gymnastics i guess but <laughs> anyway so but you did go up one time finally right and it was it. awesome wasn't it it was you and alex had already got on the ledge and jumped down and then i got up there and it looked further than probably was so i was like sitting up there for like five minutes it was about half an hour for sure 
It was half an first hour. Off, oh, first off, oh, first off, no, it was. We had maybe twenty five minutes. Twenty <laughs> <laughs> had to convince you that yeah. you weren't going to kill yourself. Right. For a minute, I thought we were going to call the fire department. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, and I felt bad because I'm the one who pressured you up there. I, I remember you looked a little bit like Kermit the Frog, <laughs> how he does with his legs dangling and all that. And yeah. you finally it, jump? Eight, nine, ten feet. I mean, oh, was it? Yeah. That far? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't a small jump. No, it was hard. Yeah. And of course, Alex couldn't talk because he didn't get there in the first place. He, he, oh, he didn't. Yeah, he just stayed down. He was wise enough not to follow me up there. <laughs> That's right. He didn't get up there. Right. It was just the two of us. Right. Then finally, I just jumped. It doesn't go well. <laughs> I landed and I felt something pop in my right knee and I went down. And it was like most excruciating pain. Like the next day, my knees swell up. It was actually, I dislocated it, and to this day it's dislocated. But the thing I felt bad was you'd already signed up for the Navy, right? But you hadn't had your physical yet. I hadn't had my physical. And one of the things they have you do is like, they have you like duck walk around. Right. My knee was still hurting, and I couldn't duck walk very well. I was trying to fake it as best I could, and like, it was almost like tears coming down my face with my knee hurt so bad. They didn't look at it, and I was able to hide it. I was afraid that, because I know that's how you were going to college, the ROTC, right? No, yeah. it's the GI Bill. The GI I Bill, I'm yeah. bad. I hit it, and they never did find out about it. Kind of along those lines, this funny story about Mark that I remember in junior high, we had a obstacle course day, and you know, all different things you have to run around and do. There's one they had like, I guess it was like the balance beam for like gymnastics. And you know how high those things set, maybe, what, four or five feet off the ground? Mm -hmm. Well, we was online getting ready to do the obstacle course, and Mark was in front of me. Most people were trying to do it as fast as they could and get a good time, you know, taking it real serious, and Mark goes, watch this. And he gets up, and he gets to the balance beam, and then when he goes to cross it, he fakes like he nails himself in the nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and looks right at me and goes, oh, you know, and I start bust out laughing like because I knew he was, no, joking. <laughs> and then he kept on going. I don't know if anybody else saw it, but it was like a private joke in between me and him. <laughs> And the other thing, talking about climbing up on top of buildings, did you climb up on top of Bilo with us? No. We did that too. Uh, of course, this was after high school. We, a lot of us worked at Bilo, uh -huh. another grocery store in town. And we got to the point, you know, we're in our 19, early 20s, where we were, some of us were like night manager stuff, me and Judd, you know. So we would have the keys at the end of the night to lock up the store. The adults were already gone. <laughs> so, so we were in charge. And, of course, we had five or six buddies that would run around town, wait for us to get off work, and then we'd get into mischief. So one night, we locked up the store, and about seven or eight of us climbed up on top of the bilo, and we had uh, water balloons, and we had these big elastic, uh, like, medical tubing, mm -hmm. and we would slingshot the water balloons clear across the parking lot and, like, nailed Hardee's on the other side of the parking wow, lot. Wow, are you serious? And we would shoot them over across and hit Walmart and stuff, people in the parking lot. And, uh, of course, a lot of us... Had just got off work there, so still had our bylaw uniforms on. Well, we get done with our mischief up there, and we we had to climb up to get up on top. We had to climb up like this big smokestack incinerator, which probably wasn't real smart. <laughs> but we climb back down. We get back around to the front, and the cops pull up, and they're like, uh, "We heard reports that there were people up on the roof of bylaw." 
And, uh, you know, me and Jeb, we still had our bylaw with uniforms on. So we let the cops square in the eye and said, oh, yeah, there are some kids up there. We ran them off about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and the cops bought it. So we got away with it. One of the fellows you just heard there, James, had been back by the woodpile on episode 50 where he told about his first crush ever. It's adorable and you really should go back and listen to it. And as it turns out, I got a hold of the object of Jimbo's affection and asked her about their whirlwind grade school romance. So a, f- a few podcasts ago, uh, James told the st- yeah. story about his first crush, <laughs> which was you, and, yes, go- I- <laughs> and going to the roller rink together. Do you remember that? You know, until I listened to it, I had I, I didn't remember it. I didn't remember it until he said something, and then it was like, oh, my God, I do remember doing that now. It was so sweet. It's mm-hmm. really sweet to be someone's first crush like that, and it was a sweet story, and I was funny. He was a nice boy. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was his first crush. And Did you even realize he had a crush on you? Well, you know, I must have because I went to the roller rink with him. <laughs> and I did the, the slow skate, so I must have, um, I must have known he was a little sweet on me. Aww. I didn't know that. He was ready to get married? Yeah, I didn't know we were going to get married and have property or anything. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sweet. Well, I mean, at that age, were you even thinking about boys? No, I, I can't say that I was really. Mm. You know, being nine... I mean, mostly in sixth grade, you just trying to get away from them. Yeah, we were pulling your hair because we liked you. Right, yeah, those things. I do remember Alan, Jeff's brother, we got him suspended because he kept coming up to me and Christy and I believe Heather, and he would honk our boobies. Whoa. <laughs> yes. You know, like honk, honk. And it was like, and we told on him, of course, because he wouldn't stop. Hey, just taking a break to mention that if you'd like to help out in the corner back by the woodpile, you can become a patron by clicking on our Podbean page and clicking on the icon that reads Patron. Or if you wanted to be a sponsor or underwriter or advertiser, shoot us a line via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com and we'll hash it all out. And you could donate via PayPal via that same email, spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You know, for the price of a cup of coffee once a month, you could help me buy a cup of coffee once a month which of course would make me a lot more alert as I put these podcasts together and more regular. Plus, I'd mention your names on the show in such a carefree manner like only a man who was regular could. There are times when if you're defending freedom, you have to confront those who are diminishing freedom. What does confrontational mean? It means you fight for what you believe against other people who believe something different. Over yonder, across the big pond, the 1980s marked the reign of Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of England. Though despised by groups like labor unions, left-wing musicians, and Marxist dictatorships, the Iron Lady was elected three times by the British people and was the longest-serving UK Prime Minister in the 20th century. One Brit reflects back on those years with us. Margaret Thatcher, she came in as the Conservative Prime Minister for England in 1979. And I remember my grandmother, actually, she was like a political type person. I always seemed to be interested in this sort of stuff. 
So at a very young age, I was sitting watching the elections and things like this going on. And I, I was conscious that she had been elected and she'd gone into office. And I just recalling some of the things over the 80s that she had done that uh, was quite good. And actually, uh, she was a very strong woman. I, I used to hear rumours that um, they just put her in there because uh, the men wanted to run the country and they thought they'll put her in there, allow her to... Uh, get in and actually she really did wipe the floor with them (laughs) (laughs) but anyway some of the things that I was conscious of when she was in power and remember I was still very young she introduced this concept of a right to buy because um, in the United Kingdom you have council housing so when people are uh, living uh, close to poverty or uh, there's a, a, like a mum, a single mother or whatever, and she's got one or two children. They put them in this sort of housing, in council housing. And sometimes they were not very pleasant because they were like in high-rise flats and we used to call it concrete cities. Kind of not very nice to look at. And if you go into these places, it's not very desirable. You'd be a little bit worried or whatever. But they used to have people live in these types of housing. They also had nicer council housing that would be a part of like an actual terrorist home and you wouldn't know that it's a council property at all. She brought in this uh, opportunity for people in this type of housing to buy the places that they were in. So if they were living in a council house or a council property for a certain amount of time, they had the right to buy it. And the houses at the time were being sold or the properties were being sold for like £10,000 in any event, they would be getting some sort of discounted rate. And people did buy the houses. Now, what happened is later on, the the house prices really came up, you know. And so people would be sitting on a a little nest egg. People who had been in poverty before, if they were able to take advantage of this right to buy, they would have some success because if they want to sell or go into a new housing, they had this great big uh, property with um, some equity in it. So I was conscious that she did that. My sister-in-law, she used to live in one of these uh, properties that was looked just like a house. She was able to take advantage of that right to buy situation and I was so happy for her. Like I said, that was one of the good things that uh, Margaret Thatcher did. 30 seconds, 45 seconds later, a second explosion. All attempts to destroy democracy by terrorism will fail. The other thing I I recalled her doing is um, she privatised a lot of big organisations that were actually owned by the government. So that government used to own the gas companies, the electric companies, they used to own the um, telecom companies, they used to own all of these companies, and she sold them off. And what what happened is those shares for those organisations, she sold them to the public. So people like me and my family, we had, uh, my mum, she bought us all, uh, all of the children, she bought us a, a bunch of shares, British gas shares, so that we could keep them and sell them later on. In actual fact, that's what I did. So what, she, what Margaret actually used to say is that was giving back to the people. So, I mean, I think conservatives don't like big government anyway, and this was one of her ways of kind of making it smaller, I guess. But she sold off all of these portions of the government and allowed it to be shared by the people. Uh, in the U.S., you know, anything the U.S. government runs, they seem to do it poorly and very inefficiently. Was that the same case yeah. in the U.K. with the government owning all well, of these utilities, we would call them? I think I was probably too 
young to understand it all, but I would say that that would have been the case because these organisations, they were not small, they were huge. And there's always bureaucracy in these sorts of places, you know. I thought that she really, that was a good idea for her to plan to do that, but it wasn't that she privatised it and put it back to big business. And it did go to big business, but just the ordinary person had an opportunity to buy shares in that organisation. And that organisation was usually a company like British Gas and and, and uh, British Telecom, when they were with the government, it was like they really were the ones that were controlling it. it was, they always used to be talking about monopolies. So they were very powerful. So these uh, shares that got given to the people were actually worth something. But the power I took was the power to reduce the power of government, to reduce the taxation, to reduce the ownership of government. In other words, to limit the powers of government, not to enlarge them. Now, this is one thing that I didn't like that she did because she took away the milk. In actual fact, her name is Margaret Thatcher, right? And mm -hmm. they used to call her Margaret Thatcher, the milk snatcher, <laughs> because <laughs> that was one of the first things she did when she came in because she said that it was too much money. She was cutting all sorts of money out of education. I just remember it because we used to have this milk. It used to come in this little bottle. It was so cute. Mm -hmm. I used to watch them. They'd bring them into the classroom. they put them down. And you'd have the milk. And sometimes it was really nice. And sometimes it didn't taste so good. Because I don't know what if they left it out too long. But you'd take the little, it'd be like a little foil top that they had on there. And you'd take it off and then there'd be some cream all stuck around there. And it's looking a bit like not, not very appetizing. But um, it was good because some children didn't have, an, you know, sometimes children didn't have breakfast or whatever. And, you know, she used to used to be able to get the milk and she stopped that. And that's what they called her. And I think that there was some controversy. She was supposed to be getting a doctorate degree. And one of the reasons why she didn't is because she made so many cuts in education. They didn't want to give it to her an mm -hmm. educational accolade of a doctorate because she cut. She cut holes in education. Right. She cut, she really did. There's only one woman in the cabinet. Believe you me, there are a lot more prima donnas than that. Oh, they came round. Goodness me, their reputation. Never mind about mine. Never mind all the briefing that was going on against my viewpoint in the background. Goodness me, they were touchy. Oh, you had to smooth them down. One of the things that I know was not going down well, but I could see the reason why she was doing it, is that in the North, this kind of work went back thousands of years with the Romans coming over, digging up coal from the ground. They had created these uh, coal mines in the north of uh, England. And of course, people in the north, that was what they did for a job. They went to the coal mines, dug the coal out, because that's what we were using for our fuel. I remember when we had these sort of heaters, you, you could put the coal in there and you just didn't have like electricity and things like that going through the house or central heating, you didn't have that sort of thing. So you just have this little canister or whatever that you could keep keep your room warm. And they were really dangerous because my dad was always saying to me he felt that that was going to fall over and something was going to get burnt. And some places that did happen. But they used coal as an energy and it got replaced by other things. And she wanted to close those um, pits down. I mean, and I think in the north now, those pits are closed down and they've turned to different types of 
it's technology, isn't it? It doesn't necessarily have to be on the computer, but technology takes over uh, or you find cheaper ways of doing things. You, you find cheaper ways and better ways or more efficient ways of using energy, uh, gas or electricity or whatever seem to be um, the ones that took over and put coal right to the back of everything. And all of those coal miners in the north that were losing their jobs. So I remember there was a guy called uh, Arthur Scargill and he was up there fighting for the miners. And I remember they were on a strike, but they were on a strike for it seemed like forever. I'm sure it was around about a year or something. But in the end, you know, after all of that striking, they lost because that's not what anybody was using anymore to keep their homes warm. So. She wiped out the trade union. She brought taxation down to a level that the words brain drain just disappeared. But most of all, she made your man standing in the pub with a pint of beer say, I'm proud to be British. And up now, our friend John Thompson from True Tunes Magazine talking about how Mr. Mister led the 80s generation in a daily mass on the radio. So yeah, the mid-80s and, you know, there was both this Christian rock world and then there was U2 who was doing spiritually minded music in the mainstream, but it was not really yet yeah. filling stadiums. And we've talked about some of the other bands that were doing the same thing, like The Call, uh, yeah, right. 77s. None uh, of those had broken. They were, they were not on Top 40 radio. No, <laughs> but they were they were around, right, maybe college right, radio right. or something. And I was already, you know, at, by the time Mr. Mr. came out, I was devouring every magazine I could find that would talk about music from a bigger perspective than Rolling Stone. Yeah. I was looking for information on artists who were Christians because I was whatever 14 15 i was still trying to slash my way through the, the jungle you know and find a path that would integrate my deep spiritual convictions with my deep creative compulsions in a way that made sense and so i was finding that i was by the time 85 came along i was 15 i'd been to the first one or two cornerstone festivals and i was hearing music that totally made sense to me but what was interesting was that the most compelling music, and I think this is kind of an axiom that I found to be true most of the time, the most interesting artists are not commercially successful. And the few who are, it's because one song kind of comes out of left field and breaks them through. And for the most part, that song is not indicative of their overall body of work. And so I was used to, by 1984-85, the idea that the most compelling music that had some spiritual content to it was not going to be mainstream. And the best we were hoping for was either some kind of silly moment when something like Striper would run up the charts and you, you kind of celebrate a little bit because, wow, they're saying to hell with the devil on the radio, you know. Or it was digging deep into something to go, maybe if I interpret it this way, maybe this, you know. But then Mr. Mister comes out with Kyrie Eliasson where it's just flat out church language with no apologies no nothing just this is a song that's literally saying lord have mercy christ have mercy lord have mercy and to explain people that weren't raised either episcopal or catholic kyrie is one of the masses yeah 
as is Gloria, what you two had done. Yeah, right. Gloria was interesting because you didn't have to know that that was Gloria in Te Domine. For one thing, we were used to not understanding what half of the lyrics in a rock song were. Sure. But then you couldn't tell if it was, you know, a girl's name, Gloria, or if it was the Gloria. Um, but if you had ever been singing the Messiah or any other kind of mm-hmm. classical religious songs, which growing up in choir I had, you immediately recognize Gloria in Te Domine, Exultate. But then Kyrie comes out and it just starts right out of Kyrie, you know, and, and yeah, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. See, and- I didn't, so I assumed that Kyrie was a hot chick with big hair and, and spandex <laughs> leggies. Oh, man. So, but the and thing- she was at the end of some road. I'm like, all right. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. And I immediately heard that and was like, what? This is on Top 40 Radio. And in fact, it was a friend of mine who first heard it and said, have you heard? Because she knew that I went bonkers for any morsel of mm-hmm. gospel on the radio. And she's like, have you heard this Kyrie song? And I was like, no. And it was a new single. And then we found it and listened to it, and I couldn't believe it. When I was young, I thought of growing old And what my life would mean to me In our Mass or liturgy, we would say that as part of the overall Mass. It would be just a, a greeting. The priest would say, Kyrie eleison. The congregation would say, Christe eleison. The priest would say, Kyrie eleison. Or, or however you did it. I was dumbfounded that this band I had never heard of just showed up out of nowhere with this song. And I'll admit that at first the song was so mainstream sounding like musically, it wasn't my favorite thing, but the spiritual energy of it made it more compelling to me. But I did, you know, find out Richard Page, who was the singer and writer, and he had done all this stuff in the producing records and uh, from all the way back in the 70s, had been involved with some pretty huge pop records, even like Village People and stuff Mm. like that. So, and then I started to look and, you know, back then in the 80s, the whenever a band got on the radio, they'd get on the cover of all these kind of Tiger Beat type magazines. Oh, yeah. And so I started buying any magazine that has Mr. Mister on it. But the frustrating thing was none of them ever told you anything. Right. Like, of and it was, once you realize that, it's like, okay, but Spin or Rolling Stone or there was some college music magazines that would actually do interviews. And, and that was part of what made me want to start interviewing artists because I was so frustrated. I wanted to know everything behind the scenes. I mean, did any of these magazines, even the ones that went a little deeper, did they talk to Mr. Mister about Kyrie? And- Basically, they all sort of echoed, this song is a, a piece of a mass turned into a pop song. How great is that? And I was just speechless. Like, wait a second, the 77s are way cooler than this. Why, why is it not okay for them to do this? And, and that really started me thinking that because they weren't trying to be clever about it, they were just flat out saying something that in fact, most Americans, because Catholicism was definitely the dominant, there was more Catholics than anybody else at that point. And they would have all, whether they were really like living a very spiritual life or not, would have grown up where that language would have meant something to them. And it would connect them in a way that was non-threatening. It was something that they could, oh man, you remember going to church? Like, Mm -hmm. Lord have mercy on the road I must travel. You know, Lord have mercy on this highway in the night. Like it's very specifically connecting it to a, a Jesus message, but it's also very vaguely connecting it to any kind of struggle in life. It's kind of the perfect formula. 
And it showed that when you do it right, the culture is not as opposed to the message of Jesus as it often is to the methods of Jesus followers, right. you know, so that, and it reminded me that it was probably what it would have been 15 years earlier that Oh Happy Day had climbed up the charts. Right. When Jesus Now here's the other thing, you got to you know acknowledge the pop perfection, and only later realizing how much experience Richard Page and the other members of the band had, it was all of that preparation of working in L.A. in studios that prepared them to write the perfect formula 80s arena style pop song. Kyrie sounds like it's coming from a band that has been playing in stadiums for five years at that right. point. And it's not, it's a studio band that hardly did any live shows right. from what we can tell. I read that that Richard Page had been offered a chance to sing in Chicago. Oh, wow. uh, he'd offered a chance to sing for Toto, which was another band. Of another studio band. Studio band. Yeah. Yeah. So basically Mr. Mister is Toto with at least one member, I'm not sure about everybody, who has a specific spiritual perspective. But then the second single, Broken Wings, which is taken from that Khalil Gibran book. You know, oh, yeah. it's the same book that Blackbird you know, it, it was influenced by. And I had read that and I had known about that as an example of an Islamic or Arabic poet who's taking a more romantic, poetic approach to using spiritual imagery, uh, combining it with Christian imagery, Jewish imagery, because Gibran did that um, almost in a theosophical kind of a way. I knew about that guy and I knew about that poem and I went back and read it, you know, at the time and, uh, but the bigger one was the prophet, but it's the same idea. And Broken Wings, literally, it comes from that book. And so then I was like, well, I wonder if they're really Christians or if they're just kind of new age spiritual, whatever, and they're just kind of borrowing religious imagery. Because other bands were starting to do that. I think that whenever the culture goes fully decadent, like when you, the deeper you get into the, the Duran Duran side, which is just, you know, sex and, right. you know, there's not a lot of content going on or the Bon Jovi side, then there's usually a reaction somewhere in the culture. There's another yang that comes around uh, to that yin. You know, so Springsteen in the 70s is kind of responding to the, the punk and the Dis stupid disco. 70s disco stuff. And he's coming out with songs that are referencing a lot of biblical imagery because I think that there's a tether that most of us in Western society have to some kind of moral sure. compass. And so that some of that is strategic, some of it is probably just cultural uh, phenomenon. There was an album they did after yeah. the big hits right. and there was a song called Healing Water yes. which had that it's a right. beautiful song yes. and it has similar... that record was actually better mm -hmm. I think had a lot more interesting stuff on it mm -hmm. than the first two but zero hits mm -hmm. and that's another thing it's kind of like without the hits the thing didn't exist mm -hmm. and that's the tragedy of it because right. so much great music has existed that just never had any hits so I never got a chance to see them play, but I do remember going to Willow Creek, which was a mega church, it was a mega church in Chicago, going to their youth group and the, the youth group band playing 
Kyrie and Broken Wings. Like anytime a song would come on the radio that had yeah. some kind of spiritual content, yeah. they would do it. And then they did Stand and Deliver. They did some TV and like film songs. Mm-hmm. And I got those 12-inch singles and stuff. And they had really good stuff. I mean, it was more mainstream than what I usually listen to. Um, and it wasn't quite, it didn't have quite the funk side that Toto had, which mm-hmm. I've, I realized I liked a lot was that kind of yeah. R&B side. But it was really good. It just didn't have the roots almost. It's wild to look back at their discography and see really three albums. I think the fourth album was recorded and RCA or whoever the label was didn't even put it out. And they just sat on it. I think one song came out on like a best of record. And then maybe 25 years later, 22 years later, they somehow they released that album. And if it had come out in 1990, that would have been right in step with... You know, U2 is now a huge band and Simple Minds are a big band that are going more sophisticated in what they're doing. And The Call was, you know, on the cusp. They were always right Mm -hmm. there, ready to be the next big thing. There was a lot of examples, the alarm, of bands that were doing what we called the big music back then. You know, it was some some called it other stuff. But I I remember like Tears for Fears was a good example of big music. It was like. This stuff, it's not only big in terms of stadiums, because, you know, Van Halen was that. This was big, like, the big ideas of life, the big heart songs, right. the things that... And to me, a lot of the big music we were talking about was so spiritual. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those artists used spiritual imagery, whether they were what we would call, like, practicing committed Christians or not, who knows. But they grew up in a, in a culture where the religious symbols meant something to everybody. And so... By referencing them, you could create a literary connection point with a large audience and your art could effectively deliver whatever that message was. And so I think that Mr. Mister was doing that. Although later I saw there's a there was this early Jesus music artist named Paul Clark. And Paul had been part of like during the Randy Stonehill, Larry Norman, Phil Keggy, those days. He was a he was a pioneer artist, did some amazing records, but somehow is is not usually talked about in the same context as some of those other names. So Paul Clark did a record in the late 80s or maybe around 1990. And basically Mr. Mister was his band on the record. It was an indie record, tiny record. It was good? It was a fantastic record. I've asked the questions and I've made suggestions that sometimes sounded the same. And when, I, when that happened, I was like, okay, so these guys are probably Christians who are savvy enough to see what happens when you become branded as Christian music. You're never going to get a seat at the big table. And Paige, and I can't remember the other guy's name, um, had clearly so much experience in mainstream music and were so respected for just, I mean, listen to his voice. He's just a great singer. That they got the respect of the music industry as songwriters and artists and so they did it in a way that it delivered this powerfully spiritual message in an unabashed way and impacted people more than any christian rock artist of that decade did that's for sure i remember even uh you know i started true tunes when i was what like 19 so i was starting to work at a christian bookstore when i was 86 and i sold mr mr records and people go this is a christian band i'm like i don't know (laughs) but this is definitely good true and beautiful music so Mm -hmm. i'll stand by that and i i've always wanted to meet richard and find out how much of that was calculated how much of it was him saying 
Yeah, I've seen how, you know, what happens when you become Whiteheart, and I've seen what happens mm-hmm. when you, you know, and maybe he could kind of blend the two and yeah. do really mainstream music, but with a really strategic, but instead of trying to be all clever and cute and subtle about it, he just goes right up front. And in that way, Kyrie is essentially a white people arena level consumer or commercial rock gospel song. Mm-hmm. It taps into the same kind of communal energy as gospel music. And I think has the same non-threatening sort of nature because of that. I want to thank my guest, Ken and Amy Walls, DJ Art and Soul, Brother McWilliams, James Boyer, Felicia Dykus, Angela Bushel, and John J. Thompson. And if you miss the 80s or the people you heard today, all of them and more can be heard on past episodes of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill, in addition to our other 80s podcast, Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, Go to spuncounterguide.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Bro